to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, Somalia Jomot, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're doing Family Tree Volume 2, so I'm going to talk about a brother and a sister composer. And I'm going to talk about a family tree that hails from one varietal, Ooh. and how important that varietal is in its region. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. What up? What up, Jill Mott? How's it going? Great. Family Tree, Volume 2. Volume 2A. I'm going to talk today about a grape called Sauvignon, which, not to be confused with Sauvignon or, or Sauvignon Blanc, this is actually S A V A G N I N, which Weird. is um, native to the Jura or somewhere around that area in eastern France. Wow. I I I was so confused when you said that name of that grape initially. Well, so many people are because yeah. so many people hear that and think and I if you look at it it looks like Savagnin yeah. or Savagnin and yeah. it just because you say it with a French accent Savagnin it does sound like someone's going Savagnin blanc <laughs> and they don't they would say Sauvignon Right. And this, so, yeah. Seven, We're, we're going to taste one that um, I specifically chose that is somewhat atypical for the region, and I'll talk about why right. in a moment. But, yeah, okay. what, who are you going to talk about? A brother and sister, you said. Yep, we're going to talk about Fanny and Felix Mendelssohn, and they were both brilliant composers and musicians with tremendously interesting lives and interests, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about those two. We'll probably talk a little bit more about Fanny, um, but Felix, go I, XX. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's good stuff. So, well, Felix, for the most part, right, has gotten most of the time in the sun, right? If we well, yeah. historically and even present day, most people have heard of Felix before they hear of Fanny. Definitely, okay. yeah. And I mean, y you definitely know many Felix Mendelssohn melodies, whether you know it or not. And we listen to Johann Sebastian Bach's music largely in part because of Felix Mendelssohn. Uh, so yeah, there's some. They, they're just a fascinating family. Who is older? Fanny's older. Yeah, okay. Fanny's about four years older. Fanny was born in 1805. In I think they were born in Hamburg. Maybe I can't remember now. But they were raised in Berlin, I believe. Okay. Um, but yeah, so Fanny was born in 1805. Felix born in 1809, and they both died in 1847, which is super sad. We can talk about that later. Yeah, I was gonna. But, I was just gonna start talking about it now, but we'll save it. <laughs> Let's not get to their death before yeah. we relive their lives yes, and exactly. their music. Um, should we start by tasting, yes. drinking, uh, listening? Yeah. No, what? that's drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish you could all see. I looked across, and Emily gave the like. Drinking sign, like the 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 universal putting, tipping the yeah, tipping the chalice to the mouth yeah. without having anything in her hands. It was pretty great. So the reason that I chose this wine today is it's a Sauvignon that has just shy of fourteen days of skin maceration. So it's it's almost two weeks, and I chose this because this is somewhat atypical for Sauvignon. Uh, Sauvignon is usually made either just like a white wine. Or it's made with a veil of floor, like a sherry, like that yeast film that can give a lot of attributes to wine in terms of flavor, protect it from oxidation, etc. And it's it's a style of wine that's found all over the world, um, but it's very popular in this region. But we won't talk about those today because they they highlight more the process and the place versus just the grape that I want to speak of. And the reason I chose this is because this 13-day this maceration, what that does is we, you know, we know that with orange wines, yes, they can be fun and they have more texture and all these things than a lot of other white wines because they have that skin contact. But most people that study grapes would, would not argue with the fact that the majority of DNA in a grape is in its pips, of course, but in its skins. So why would you negate the juice being in contact with the skin? So I thought we'd get even more Sauvignon goodness, <laughs> is what I thought, which is why I chose this. 
I'll talk about the producer in a little bit, but let's just give a little sip. Sippy yes. sip. The color is like, okay, now say it. Now say it. It's what color? Honey. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> Usually Emily says it's golden. Oh, and yeah. And we could be drinking like a Pinot Grigio and Emily would be like, it's golden. <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe a little Uh, overstated. It's super overstated. No, Emily's got uh, great conage in her (laughs) eyes. Um, This is quite golden in color. It's like almost like light apple cidery. Mm -hmm. Cheers to Scores and Pours. Cheers. Oh my gosh, it smells like fresh, like fresh hard cider. I think it smells like pears. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Like fermenty, like pears that are fermenting. Wow. That's Whoa. got some zest to it. There's a reason why this is 60 bucks, probably. Damn. It's got a ton of flavor. Wow. It's got a lot of texture, very acidic, which is classic Sauvignon. Sauvignon okay. is never not leaded with acidity. Okay. Unless it's been kind of overly filtered. And yeah, just, you know, quite quite tannic, not super tannic. The Tanniest acid is bit, actually yeah. more... Yeah, you know, a, a, almost more accentuated on the palate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't last as long as I want it to last. Oh, it goes away fast, but it's delicious. The acid sticks around, but the flavor kind of dies a little quick, more quickly than I want it to. I feel like the minerality, like if I were to lick a rock, like mm-hmm. that kind of flavor stays with Lingers. me. Yeah, and maybe like if I, it's almost yeah. like if brandy weren't so high in alcohol. Like it's it's. Dried grapey that mm-hmm. hangs around, but all the pear and the fermented fruit does not. So to start talking about Sauvignon, because we could talk about this wine for the whole show. <laughs> Sauvignon is a grape. The reason I chose it is because it has one of the most popular grapes we know of, or family of grapes we know of in its lineage. Um, when we talked about Marquette, we talked about one of the grandparent grapes being Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Here, one of the parent grapes in Sauvignon is the in the Pinot family. We don't even say Pinot Noir or Pinot Gris or Pinot Blanc because it's likely a mutation of either one of those or okay. or one a mutation of one of those. And we know that this grape has existed since for at least nine hundred years, if not around 1,000 common era. I mean, they've done recent excavations um, from great pips found around France, everywhere from Western France to Eastern France, Middle Ages, Iron Age, um, Roman times, and they've compared these, and they are identical to Sauvignon, meaning that this grape has been being cut and grafted onto other rootstocks. Cuttings have been brought from various tribes, various peoples mm-hmm. for centuries, which is fascinating that the grape, and, and it's granted Sauvignon has mutated. I won't really talk about that because that's a whole nother show about <laughs> like the four or five different grapes that you know Sauvignon has mutated into. Wow. But if you've heard of the grape called Traminer, I'm not talking about Gewürztraminer, different grape called Traminer. We know that this they're probably one and the same. There's an ampelographer by the name of Pierre Gallet, who actually just passed away last year in um, 2019, unfortunately. But he was born in 1921, and he was an ampelographer, which is a the study of the vine, the study of okay. grape leaves, classifying them and um, studying their DNA. He was He's considered the father of modern ampelography, and he was pretty certain that Traminer and Sauvignon were the same grape. Fast forward now, a, a group of DNA you know, scientists, ampelographers, and writers have gotten together, and I've mentioned the grapes, the wine grapes book that's like a thousand yeah. plus pages. They also think that Traminer and Sauvignon are the same, but there are people that debate that. So we know that it's got this lineage of Pinot something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And something else, <laughs> question mark. It's hilarious that they got away with that in the wine grapes book because there's like all these great pullouts, you know, where you got like three, four pages mm-hmm. of like family trees. Yeah. And Sauvignon says, Pinot, question mark. Wow. And then the product is Sauvignon. Um, Amazing. So we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there, but a ton of history. So we're talking about a grape that's at least a thousand-ish years old. Yeah. And... 
in almost its same form. We know obviously they were making wine a lot different, you know, 900,000 years ago. But the fact that we can still taste the same grape is remarkable because that's not the case for most grapes out there. Amazing. It's very delicious. I I like it. It's very different. And most Sauvignons, when you have one that is made sous voile, so with that veil of yeast, with voile or floor, that gets like this... You know, you smell something that smells kind of akin to sherry, but isn't as strong, very nutty. And Or if you have it without voile, then you're kind of getting to something that doesn't taste anything like Chardonnay. You know, it has like more acid and it's got a little, potentially a little bit more, bo- whatever. But it's it's white wine, you know, whereas yeah. like in this way with skin contact, it's a totally different beast, which is super fun. Yes. Mm. And you said two weeks of skin contact? Yeah, 13 days in this case. Okay. Okay. And I'll talk about the producer in a little bit, but All right. Mendelssohn yeah. me. Mendelssohn. All right. Fanny Mendelssohn, as I mentioned, born 1805, oldest of the four children. She was four years older than Felix, as I've also already mentioned. Their mother loved Bach, and they also had extended family who were musicians and loved Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, who was you know, uh, born in 1685, died in 1750. So this is you know, a solid 50 years later. His family is still studying and and loving Bach, which you couldn't in 1810, say, go hear a concert of Bach's music. Like, that Mm -hmm. just wasn't done. Uh, Pianists and musicians were studying Bach, and they were learning about him, but not necessarily performing him or anything. It just wasn't done. Okay. And that becomes significant for a lot of reasons. I think it obviously heavily influenced both Felix and Fanny's uh, compositional style and leanings as well. They were both really quite conservative composers for their time. Uh, they were alive and thriving uh, really at, in the kind of early decades of the Romantic era, but it was chugging along, and then they were still writing things like fugues and uh, really paying attention to older forms of music and taking inspiration from that. Anyway, Fanny... And Felix grew up in a very affluent family. They were high class. And that probably adversely affected Fanny's ability to be a musician. I wish I remembered where I read it, but had Fanny been from a poor family, they might have taken advantage of her as as a musician to maybe tour as a pianist or sell her compositions. Because wasn't she like her brother in the fact that they noticed like some sort of prodigy-like... yes. Abilities at a very young age. Yep, they noticed right away that she was very uh, clever and uh, understood counterpoint harmony. She was a great pianist. But, I mean, I think she played out in public maybe three times, I think, in her whole life compared to someone like Clara Schumann, who was her contemporary. Clara made her living as a concert pianist in in many ways. Mm. So just interesting that the affluence of the Mendelssohn family probably suppressed Fanny's career, in addition to the fact that her father didn't want her to be a musician, and her brother kind of didn't either. Felix did not support her as a publishing artist, but he did support her as a composer. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he, They were joined at the hip, really, and consulted each other constantly on the music they were writing, but Felix really kind of didn't really want her to publish, and some of her music was published under Felix's name, et cetera, et cetera. So well, the, yeah, that's, that's just right there. sounds like yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to go there. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I mean, obviously, yes, support her. He knew she was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like, yeah, I'd be happy to get that published for you. Just put my name on it, sister. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Well, Mendelssohn ended up spending, uh, he took several trips to England in, in the, you know, 1830s and such, and Queen Victoria loved his music and told him that he loved one of his Opus 8 songs. And he told her, he's like, actually, Fanny wrote that. So he would own up to yeah, it. Yeah, that's, okay, that's awesome. Yeah, so it's not like there was much confusion about that. Uh, not not until the this piece was discovered in the 1970s was there a little more debate over over that. And um, that's the piece we're going to hear today is this piece called the Easter Sonata. Let's do it. Okay. So this is a piece, as I said, it was discovered in the 19... So actually, in 1970. And it was called 
I can't remember what it is in German, something like Oster Sonata. And it was written in 1828. And this, whoever found it, saw that it was signed F. Mendelssohn and just assumed Felix Mendelssohn. I honestly don't know if there was any more thought put into it at that time or not, or if it was just like, F. Mendelssohn's got to be Felix, you know? Yeah. And so that's how that sonata was thought of for many decades until the early 2000s, 2009. There's a musicologist named Angela Mace Christian, and she, it seems like her studies were really focused on the Mendelssohns, uh, and she found a recording of a pianist playing this Easter sonata, and she listened to the recording, and she, she remembered that through her studies, she had seen letters that Fanny wrote referencing an Easter sonata that she wrote for piano in 1858. Hmm. And these letters were from the, the following year, I think, from 1859. Or, or, I'm 18, sorry, 1828. 20, yeah. 1829, apologies. So I think the, the letters in 1829 said something about an Easter sonata she had written last year. Okay. So then this musicologist, Angela Mace Christian, just goes on this, she's like single focus now, she's got to find this thing. She goes to Berlin, tries to find the manuscript that's supposed to be in this manuscript, this whole book of manuscripts of Fanny's, and those pages are missing. So she finds the pianist who recorded it. He's still alive at the time. He's like, dude, totally. I can tell you where the manuscript is. So she goes, it's in England. She finds it. It's got the page numbers written on it from the missing, <gasps> right? Because it had been pulled out yep. of this huge, giant thing. It's got her handwriting, which Angela Mace Christian was familiar with. I wouldn't be, but she's studied the Mendelssohn. So she, she's like, that's Fanny's handwriting. And she's also familiar enough with Fanny's writing to know idiosyncratically how Fanny writes for the piano. Mm-hmm. She's like, this was written by Fanny. And eventually, you know, enough people were like, yes, that, that's true. Or maybe all it took was Angela's word because clearly she's a Mendelssohn scholar. And then it was reattributed and premiered on International Women's Day within a year or two. And now everybody knows the story of the Easter Sonata by Fanny Mendelssohn. So four movements. This is the first movement, right? Four movements, yep. We're listening to the first movement. Uh, and it's just a beautiful, um, you know, spiritual kind of religious piece, although the Mendelssohns weren't a religious family. Uh, they, weren't they, weren't they, they came from a Jewish family, right? But then yep. I know at least Felix was baptized. So they were all baptized Christian. Okay. Yep. And uh, for, I mean, just, I shouldn't have to explain why. Yeah. Uh, and that probably, even though they, you know, were baptized as Christian and I, I guess identified as isn't really appropriate because as I mentioned, they weren't really religious people. But even having the Christian, you know, faith put on their <laughs> descriptors yeah. or whatever still probably harmed Felix's career as well, since he had Jewish roots. Oh. So that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so piano sonata, yeah. A major. A major. Do you have another Beautiful. movement you want to listen? Because I really thought that the fourth movement was really pretty. Mm-hmm. It was, um, you mind if we listen to a quick little Not at snippet all. of that? This is probably one of the examples of why they thought this music was quote unquote too masculine to have been written by a woman. That's such a huge Because it's not like delicate or yep. dainty or Charming. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just imagining this woman who obviously died so young. She died in 1847, born mm-hmm. in 1805. And like up at night, you know, in the morning, you know, writing, candlelight, mm-hmm. 
and just like getting it, just like <laughs> and like right, 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 edit, edit, edit. Yeah. Just I like I love like, and after you know that there was a point where she was done writing, mm-hmm. and you know kind of put the put the the finishing bars on. Yeah. And granted, she's probably re-editing. Who knows how long? But who like, knows? she played it. You yeah. know she had to have played it. Yeah. So I just, I am imagining this woman sitting at a piano and being like, just <laughs> doing that and all that has just come out of her head over the yeah. past, you know, year, however long it took her to write it. And yeah. then she's, get, she's getting it. Yeah. And like, yes. Yeah. And she ended up writing something like 450-some-odd works, most of which were not published in her lifetime, again. Uh, And she just wrote prolifically, mostly for piano and also piano and voice. She never learned how to play a stringed instrument like Felix did. And she said to him that she thought that made her less of a composer. Like, she wasn't familiar with the ins and outs of playing a stringed instrument, so she wasn't as comfortable uh, to to write for it, you know. Hmm. Okay, can we listen to one other movement? Yes. Come on, Fanny. Well, this is the third movement. This one's so happy. And Emily and I are watching the score as we listen. Yeah, there's no commercial recording available of this. So we're, we're watching a YouTube video. The performance is by Sofia Gulyak. I believe Sofia is the one who premiered this piece for the BBC. Fanny got married in 1829. She married a guy named Wilhelm Hensel. And so you also see her name as Fanny Hensel or Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. Uh, But he was very supportive of her as a musician and a composer. And she did end up publishing works. She did that in 1846. She published her Opus One set of songs, uh, which is crazy because that happened a year before she died. But... She sent Felix a letter that said, because she knew that he didn't want her to publish, right? And so she sent him a letter and she was like, listen, I'm doing this and I hope it's okay. I just, I really wanted to do this or however she said it. And he wrote back the most beautiful letter of support saying, I'm happy for you. Like, I know this is something you've wanted. Like, it was really sweet. So... That's a beautiful little story. But she did publish eventually in her lifetime, just not much. As she should. So pretty. And again, she wrote lots of piano music, lots of lovely songs, vocal uh, music. Uh, She also wrote what she called songs for piano, much like Felix Mendelssohn wrote songs without words, Mm -hmm. uh, so as they're called for piano. So yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thanks, Fanny. Thank you, Fanny. When I'm thinking about why I love doing this podcast and why I love an episode such as this is because like it's it helps when you have something to give something else context right and some you know you people that are listening to classical music you know they might be drinking a glass of wine or or you know vice versa but i think that just the idea of the family tree of grapes you know you're not going to taste sauvignon and be like oh it reminds me of pinot yeah no, no. but you might find certain attributes whether it's been a purposeful cross by a scientist or whether it's been a, you know, a mutation that's happened in a vineyard. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can sort of get there and just the historical 
know-how of or just knowledge of like how that how that can occur and what we can have as a result is really fun. So knowing like the whole Mendelssohn story. Yes. And how we get to today and trials and tribulations for both members of the all the the whole then all the Mendelssohns, yes. but then to know you know the brother and sister connection. I don't know. I just think it's cool. Yeah, so cool. I have a question though. Yeah. About mutations. Yes. So is it like you go out to your vineyard one day and there's suddenly a little batch of white grapes that have mutated out of it? Yeah. And then you cut that and plant it. You, so that you if can, you want to if you propagate. Want to try. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were to take the seed of Sauvignon yeah. and plant that seed. Something needs to pollinate it, right? Or, or that's it depends on if it's a hermaphroditic grape or not, because they can self-pollinate. Okay. But even if you self-pollinate, let's say me, Jill Mott, I could self-pollinate. Just scare yourself that way, first <laughs> yeah. of all. I could never give birth to myself, right? right? So Sauvignon, right. even if it is a self-pollinating grape, a, a grape that has those capabilities that doesn't have a gender, it can never give birth to itself. So Sauvignon would give birth to a different varietal. Now, let's say you purposefully, you love Chardonnay, so you extract the seeds and you go plant it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they don't just blow in the wind or they don't fall off and a bird you know, eats yeah. it and then shits it 100 miles away. Yeah, That is never going to give birth to the same thing. It's just like human, it's not possible. Okay. Right? So in this case... When grapes, you're all of a sudden like, what is that in my vineyard? If you do have like a vineyard or you see, you know, vine planted, because that's not never going to happen. Like if you have rose, do, 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 of Sauvignon. Do, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're not going to see a grape, all of a sudden just some vine poking out of the ground that's okay. right next. No, it's going to, it would happen like a little ways away or it would okay. happen in a vineyard where you have them like trained in bush vine format and they're kind of maybe a little bit haphazardly, uh, okay. you know, planted is where you'd see like, oh, well, what is that one over there that's pink skinned when we're okay. in a white skinned vineyard? Okay. You know? Neat. I'm going to refresh our glasses. Oh, shall I? Yeah. So Sauvignon, let's talk about what Sauvignon has done for the world. Okay. Because Sauvignon is one of the grapes that has older or like one of the oldest uh, lineages, we'll say, and so it's it's given a lot, as opposed to having a lot behind it. If you know what I mean, we know that it's you know one of the older grape varietals, so it's given birth to a lot of famous suspects like Verdello, very famous uh, grape on the island of Madeira. We don't know the other parent, but. Sauvignon is a parent grape to that. Crazy. Um, Gruner Veltliner, for all my friends out there that are all like, ooh, Austrian and German wine is the best. Sauvignon has uh, shagged with St. <laughs> Georginer. Okay. Weird. Very. To make Gruner Veltliner. Whoa. Um, for those of you who love Sylvaner, Sylvaner is grown in Alsace. It's grown in Germany to some extent. Sauvignon has been married with... Osterreichisch Welsh, that has produced Sylvaner. There's uh, and some more famous grapes like Sauvignon is one of the parents to Sauvignon Blanc. Okay, so these are going to be a few that everybody's heard of. Go ahead. Well, so like you know, I got half my DNA from my mom and half from my dad. Is are the grapes like that too? Yep. Okay. So yep. genetics work like that. Exactly. Okay. We're taking. <laughs> we're, yep. Yep. Exactly. And we're taking genomes. One of the things with with genomes, which is a part of DNA, because and and I am not a scholar in ampelography by any stretch of imagination. So pardon me if I like start to mince and, and jumble my words here. But every set of grapes, or every grape has like a, a very stable or unstable set of genomes in, as part of their DNA. And because Sauvignon doesn't have a stable set of genomes, it is like really hard to kind of exactly trace its DNA and how it works, which okay. is why we talk about the Treminer and Sauvignon family as opposed to saying that's for sure Sauvignon. Okay. You know, or that's exactly Treminer. We know that they're probably the same because their DNA suggests it, but they're, the genomes is like getting, I guess it's getting super splitting hairs. Okay. Kind of, I don't know. I, I apologize if that comes off as being a strange way to describe things. Okay. Trousseau, a red grape, very famous in the Jura, um, along with Sauvignon. Trousseau is also, has a parent. 
one parent that is Sauvignon, the other parent, question mark. Love that. I know. So Sauvignon Blanc has Sauvignon as a parent, but we don't know the other the, the other okay. one for sure. Chenin Blanc, the star-studded white grape of the Central Loire, Sauvignon is the parent. I can't even believe this. One of the star-studded white grapes of southwestern France, Petit Mensang, that's usually in a blend, um, but it's found in a lot of a lot of wines in southwestern France. Sauvignon is the the principal parent, and then we have another wow. parent that we don't know. It's really cool to find out how many grapes hail from have as a parent Sauvignon. One of my favorite Austrian grapes called Rotgipfler that I first tasted back in probably, I don't know, maybe 2007, maybe 2008. Rotgipfler, I didn't know, or I had forgotten that it was a Sauvignon is one of the parents, and Rotorveltliner is another one of the parents. So you cross those and you get yeah. Gipfler, which is wow. kind of awesome. Amazing. Um, just And especially I think what people will find most interesting about that last five minutes was that just how many grapes have Sauvignon as a parent. So like some people are like, can I get a Sauvignon Blanc? You know? Comes from can I get a Sauvignon. Blanc? Yep. Seven, Sauvignon. Exactly. Nice. I love it more even with air. It's just in mm-hmm. like a little less chill. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It, it makes it more round as it warms up. Oh. Yeah, it's really Come delicious. On. I can't believe that so many grapes come from that, and I've never heard of it until recently. What, are we going to go to Felix next? Yeah, let's talk about Felix for a half a minute. Felix, um, often thought of as a prodigy, he was, and he was an amazing painter as well. He knew a bunch of languages. He was composing and publishing works by his early teens. He was performing by the age of eight, I think, eight or nine out in public. So he he was a well-educated, well-rounded, interesting little individual with a bit of a temper problem, but <laughs> that is what it is. Uh, so just a reminder, 1809 is when Felix was born, and he he wrote all kinds of music. He wrote a bunch of operas. He wrote oratorios, which I usually explain as opera in church without people moving around. <laughs> Okay. This is a really oversimplified way of saying it, but it's more or less like that. Um, a big uh, staged church work, basically, with a choir and an orchestra and stuff. Wow. He wrote a handful of symphonies. He wrote a bunch of string quartets. He wrote what are called concert overtures, which is just an overture to nothing, basically, just a standalone orchestral piece. That doesn't have to lead to anything. Oh, okay. It just, you know, just... Doesn't have to follow that form of leading to something yeah, else. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, when you go to an opera, the first thing you hear is the overture, and then you hear 17 hours of opera, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> this is like that without the 17 hours of gotcha. opera. Gotcha, okay. And so, uh, a lot of composers would pick topics and just, they're like, I want to write about... Uh, you know, I want to write about the coronation of this king. Well, just write a standalone overture then, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So Felix did some of that. Uh, one of the most famous is his music from A Midsummer Night's Dream. It was an overture that he wrote when he was 17 years old. And, I mean, you listen to it, and I don't know a lot of 17-year-olds right now, but I sure as hell don't know anybody who could write music like this, that's for sure. So let's Segway. Okay. Yeah, and I chose a little bit. I chose this just because it's one of his most famous pieces, and it is really delightful. So uh, let's listen to a little bit of this uh, uh, um, "Midsummer Night's Dream" by Felix Mendelssohn. tuba yeah when I was 17 I think I was wearing like Really bad sweatpants and practicing for like Zubas? Softball. No, definitely not Zubas. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, I wasn't. I, I mean, was like eating peanut butter and jelly, and like I don't know. I wasn't doing yeah, this. That's yeah. for sure. I mean, it's just I was so probably beautiful. in the process of getting kicked out of band. Actually, <laughs> um, wow. The wedding march comes from Midsummer Night's Dream music. Felix revisited the topic later in life and did add a bunch more music to it. So you can listen to a whole bunch of music that Felix wrote about Midsummer Night's Dream. It's just the overture he wrote when he was a lot younger. So the very famous wedding march, which you hear at a lot of very traditional weddings where people don't have any taste in music because they don't know what else to play. (laughs) It's terrible. Because this is a great piece. It's just, this is what you hear. Very famous wedding recessional, right? Yeah. And, and it's great. And they don't have any. T- how did this get chosen, too? Like, how did this... How it's did this called permeate, Wedding March. But how, it, how did this permeate the passage of two centuries? I'm sure we should we be could, past this now. We could probably find out, but my assumption is, is that some royals used it, and therefore all the commoners started using it, too. That's often what happens with stuff like that, but I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong. But, I mean, it is titled A Wedding March, so that doesn't hurt. Same I, with- I just keep looking back at the computer and looking at Emily and looking back at the computer <laughs> and looking at Emily being like, it's just, yeah, I don't, you know, royalty and just well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't I know. I mean, it, it's obviously such a, you wonder if we didn't have that connotation of like, that you we hear these pieces that are very of an era where, I mean, I can only speak for myself. Like I hear that and I hear like, Hetero, norm, blah, blah, blah. Not bad. (laughs) Not bad in the least. Right, right, right. Beautiful, in fact. Traditional. But when you hear it, it's like brings you there in a way Mm -hmm. that I wish I could hear it. Yeah. And not hear, and not have all the accompanying stuff that comes with it. Exactly. Yeah, just to hear it clean. Yeah. Yeah. Not to just bring my own, like, baggage and discourse and force or whatever. Okay, so, um, wait, what are we going to listen to after this? Let's listen to one more before we get back to oh, Savignon. I'll tell, okay. you about the, tell you about the wine in a brief moment, but let's listen to another tune. Because it's fun to hear, you know, 17, super popular, traditional. Yeah. Okay, let's bring something else in the mix. That's- yeah. I mean, I am... Scottish Isles. Yeah. Scottish Isles. I'm a Isles. huge fan of his uh, concert overture called The Hebrides which um, Felix, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, he visited England a lot and Scotland, and he went and saw the Hebrides, which are these islands off the coast of... Are they islands or is it just cliffs? It's an archipelago, yeah, it's, and it is a set of islands, yeah. So he did go to visit these islands, and they're called the Hebrides in Scotland, and apparently it's really beautiful, and ever since I heard this piece, it just makes me want to go because... You just hear the waves crashing right away, and it's it's just such a neat piece. I just think about freezing my ass off because I looked at it, and I looked at just to get myself, to orient myself geographically, and I yeah. was like, brr. It's probably That's cold and damp. Brr. <laughs> Sounds very Lord of the Rings. I guarantee this has been used in something like Lord of the Rings <laughs> at, in some, you know, at some point in the last couple decades. Because do you hear that? It sounds so like just expedition-like, dramatic. Yeah. Burr. More likely, they probably just borrowed from him to do that. Okay. You know what I mean? The harmonic structure, the tempo. The... Oh, you mean they so they wouldn't just directly use it? Probably not. Crazy to be able to travel somewhere, and then you're like, 
this is what I think that sounds like, or this is yeah. what it sounds like in my head. Yep. about this producer I do yeah so there's this guy who there's actually a song I think the song came first pardon me if I'm wrong because there's a great song called Le Bot Rouge which means like the red boots or something like that but <laughs> that's by like the Vomps Great. I highly recommend you find this tune and listen to it on Spotify or wherever you like streaming music. But anyway, Le Bot Rouge, so this guy, his name is Jean-Baptiste Menigos, and he has been making wine in the Jura for a while now. At least I think his first vintage was like at least seven, eight, nine years ago. But he's been organic since he started. Um, he was a teacher. He taught uh, kids with disabilities, and he just got enamored with through natural wine through the vineyard and growing grapes and then after loving that process he decided to leave his teaching post full time hmm. to make to make wine and he makes a collection of reds and whites in the Jura where so we're up in the northern part in the Arbois region which um the Arbois is very well known for a few different styles but this is the only wine that he makes with like extended amount of skin contact. He's got a uh, you know a wine with some voile with the floor. He's got he makes trousseau, pulsard, and he experiments with biodynamics. He's okay. not exclusively bio D, but here we're talking about what what I love about this grape so much is that Sauvignon takes so well to marl and clay soils. It gives them like a little bit of weight in their mid palate. And then it also loves that limestone because it accentuates its acidity. Okay. So you get the best of both worlds. You get, as you said, yeah, it's kind of getting a little richer and the mouthfeel is getting a little fuller. Yeah, as it warms as up. As it warms up. Yep. I feel like that is the clay and the marl help the grape do that. Interesting. And then limestone keeps it like very high pitched, high toned, which I... I adore, and the specific wine that we're having is uh, Jean-Baptiste, his No Milk Today. No Milk Today. English on a French wine label. That seems intense. Which, that coupled with the fact that it's Sauvignon with skin contact, yeah. he can't say Jura or Arbois on the label because Amazing. the people that are the governing body are like, no English, A, B, it doesn't taste like Sauvignon. Oh, even because it has more DNA than ever. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like so, pure Sauvignon. So now it's been relegated to the the Vin de France, a French no, table French wine, wine category. Um, but this is every year he does no milk. Today is different. So last vintage in 2015, it was a skin fermented skin macerated Chardonnay. Oh, okay. 2016, it's a Sauvignon. We'll see what 2017 has Love that. Uh, in order. But he's only using uh, native yeast to ferment the wine. It, spo it ferments spontaneously. And then he uses very low to no sulfur, just depending on the wine and the, the vintage. So Amazing. Yeah. So it's not... Mm, <laughs> it smells so good. So it's not unusual to find a wine from that region, from the Jura, that's all... Seven yen? No, it's actually okay. incredibly common okay. in terms of, I mean, you can find a lot of single variety. There are blends, but like you can find some single variety. Chardonnays, Sauvignons, Trousseau, which is red. Just Poulsard, which is red. Yeah. Why does everybody drink Pinot Noir, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc? Like, I don't get it. Like, there's a billion choices. I, I get more confused by this every week. 
Well, because, well, I, th- you know what? Honestly, the reason I think is like it's a creature comfort, and b if people come home and they like drink, they come home and they open wine to not think. Yeah. Like they open wine as a means to an end, which is relaxing. Mm-hmm. And if you know certain people to get a little saucy, right? Sure. But I don't understand that either because whether I want to relax, which is sometimes the case, get saucy, hardly ever the case. But you know, hey, once in a while, whatever. But I do. <laughs> I I can say that I don't understand not wanting to pop the cork and like be like, do I like this? Why is it different? And you yeah. don't even need to. But I guess if you aren't into like looking things up, mm-hmm. like. Yeah, my sister-in-law, I love her dearly, and she loves f- to taste fun wines that I bring her. But her favorite is Sauvignon Blanc, and it's probably because she doesn't. She got two kids and blah blah blah, and, she, and it's not in her wheelhouse to be like, well, let me look up. Yeah, spend all this time like trying to find out. But that's what I'm here for because you could be like right. Jill, right? Well, you know, use yeah. me. That's what they pay me for. You yeah. know. Well, I'm empty. Oh, all right. Are we gonna Mendelssohn a little? T- Quartet, yep. yeah. which by the way, octet is that too much? <laughs> string octet. I listened to some Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn, yes. some string octet, and I was like, "Good lord, it's just." Well, I mean, it's like diesel. Is it? Well, I mean, instead yeah. of un- I was going to say unleaded, it's leaded. That yeah. doesn't even begin to cover it. It's kind of like diesel sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly if you add eight string players as opposed to four string players, there's going to be some more depth there. You know, comparing a string octet to a string quartet, there are a lot of really delightful octets in the world. Stravinsky wrote a great octet. There are actually loads of delightful octets. I guess I should have put, put the prelude to that by saying a string octet. Oh, yeah. Is that... Like, could that be diesel? But it doesn't even matter. Yeah. I mean, it can be. It can be. Yeah. Can, I mean, you can hear the like, texture that's, change. Yeah. That's just like saying, I want a light bodied Pinot. Look at there. <laughs> I just did it, but in musical terms. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. I want a light bodied wine. I want a Pinot, but I want it from California and I want it for $13. And I want, it's not going to happen. It's going to be 15% alcohol and blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we might you. as well listen to a little bit of a string octet. He wrote this yeah. when he was 16. This is the fourth movement. When he was how old? 16. Because they didn't have DLs back in that day. They weren't being like, let's go take our learner's permit. Hey, do you know how to parallel park? No, but I can do this. No, but I can't. <laughs> do you want to go to the prom? Nah, I'm busy. Nope. <laughs> We've mentioned a couple of times how... Uh, Fanny and Felix both died in the same year. Their family had just had this, I don't even know if it's a hereditary condition, but certainly many in the family died of this condition of brain hemorrhages, which I don't know if that's the same thing as an aneurysm. I don't think it is. I think it's a different thing. Mm. Um, But basically, um, Fanny, I think, had a stroke and then died. In she the, had a stroke while she was playing the piano or yeah, something like that. Yeah, well, I think she was, like, doing a rehearsal. Yeah. She's rehearsing. Yeah. Uh, she died in May of 1847, and six months later, Felix died of the same condition in November. And Wasn't uh, he, like, super devastated, too, by his sister's passing? Oh, like he, he was been- just crushed, like I alluded to in the beginning. I mean, they corresponded constantly, and they were each other's musical confidants, really. And... I mean, so that was a huge loss when when she passed away, and it really stressed him out, and he never really recovered Hmm. from that. But also, one of the other things that is really important to talk about with Felix is uh, his revival of the performance of Bach's music. Felix got a copy of Bach's St. Matthew Passion, which is this very lengthy choral piece you know, about the Passion of the Christ. 
And he got that, I think, from his grandmother. She gave him a manuscript of it, and he just fell Lost it. in love with it. And he decided that he was going to mount a performance of this. And it had never, I don't even think Bach ever heard it performed. I can't quite remember exactly how that went down, but it had seriously been decades and no one was familiar with it. And so he does this performance of it and people go crazy. And then suddenly everybody wants to hear Johann Sebastian Bach's music. And it's been like that ever since. Uh, Mendelssohn went so far as to establish a conservatory in Leipzig where Bach worked for many years. And that's the Leipzig Conservatory, which is still around to this day, a very highly respected uh, uh, musical school. So uh, yeah. really neat stuff from from Felix in such a short life, you know? Yeah, for sure. Are yeah. we going to listen to one of his oh, so let's listen string to, quartets? Yeah, let's to listen to off? one of his string quartets that he wrote uh, in honor of Fanny after she died. This is his sixth string quartet in F minor. We'll listen to a little bit of the last movement. I love how lyrical it sounds. I also love like the the harmony in the back and forth, but also kind of the tag along factor. Mm-hmm. You know that could be very emblematic, like sibling. Yeah. Like, you know. Yep. To Jean Baptiste, to the Mendelssohns. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution at patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.